Welcome to Swift Unscripted. These Swift podcasts give you, the listener, the opportunity to hear the inside story and be part of the conversation about all means all with leaders in the field of inclusive, equity-based education and school-wide transformation. I'm Mary Shu. I'm a member of Swift, and we're here today recording a live podcast with our guest, Sue Swenson. Hi, Sue. Welcome. Hey, Mary. Thanks. Sue Swenson (laughs) is the Acting Assistant Secretary for the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitation Services, that is OZERS, at the U.S. Department of Education. She's also the parent of three children, and her son, Charlie, is someone who has inspired her to get involved in inclusive, equity-based education and school-wide transformation. So, Sue, I'm hoping that you could tell us a story, uh, give us more information about how you got connected to this important work. So, you said I'm a mom. I do have, I have three sons. Um, Charlie was the middle guy, and he was born in 1982 and had just a boatload of disabilities. So, I had to get involved with schools right from the get-go. I needed schools to be functional for my son, Will, who had a very strong sense of social justice and didn't want to see his little brother treated any differently than he was treated. Um, And I had to have the school work for me because I was the mom and I didn't want Charlie to be given less. And I had to have the school work for Charlie because he needed a ton of support in the classroom. So I guess I truly got involved starting when Charlie was going to school, which was about 1985 or so. Um, so your background's not, you didn't start out with a background in education. No, I have, I've been educated and that's my <laughs> only, that's my only um, sense of knowledge about education and how it works. And that's interesting. I think in America, most people think if they have been educated, then they have the right to have opinions about education. <laughs> and so they can sit on school boards, and that's great. We want people to sit on school boards, but um, also be on PTAs and have opinions about how schools should work. And sometimes they're right, and sometimes they're not so right. Um, so you said your your journey to where you are now sort of started when um, Charlie was entering school, did he enter into general education right from the get-go? or No. Charlie um, first was in early intervention, and it was first in our home, and then it was center-based. And then he went from the center-based uh, early intervention to his first year of public school, which was in a segregated school for children with disabilities on the other side of Minneapolis from where we lived um, and he was placed in a segregated classroom for children with profound disabilities. Uh-huh. So it was a process. And it, it really right away in the first couple of weeks, I noticed his behavior changing in some significant ways. I went to school to observe, and I realized that he was learning behaviors from little kids around him who also had severe disabilities. And I thought, just logically... If he's learning from the other kids, then why don't we have him in a classroom where he's learning things we want him to learn? And I asked that question, and that was the beginning of a long process that got me to Minnesota's Partners of Policymaking class, but also got me um, to start asking for Charlie to be 
more included in school. Mm -hmm. So the next year, he went to a segregated classroom. Well, actually, it wasn't really segregated. It was largely children with disabilities, but there were some uh, four-year-old kindergarten students in the class um, without disabilities, but in our neighborhood, in another little early childhood school. And then the year after that, which would have been second grade, he made it into a segregated classroom in the same school that Will his older brother had attended. And by then, I'd been through partners. I'd actually taught a couple of partners in policymaking classes, but I had learned from Lou Brown and you know other people about what inclusive education is and why does it matter and why is it important. Um, I was not a fighter, so I knew that I had all these due process rights and legal rights, but my theory, my my way of operating was to say I didn't want the school to comply with the law because I was working at that time in the environmental field and everything we did was about going beyond compliance. Hmm. You didn't ever want to just aim at minimum compliance with the law. So I tried to talk to the schools about how can we do the best we can for Charlie beyond just compliance with the minimum standard of the IEP. And this is a a hard message. I've worked on the Hill on IDEA, and now I've worked in the administration on the program, and I think it's a terrific program, a wonderful program. It makes a big difference to a lot of people. But it's a hard message for parents to hear that maybe it might be more effective to just not stand on your legal rights but instead to try to find ways. Um, I think moving beyond compliance is about including everybody at the school, all the teachers, all the administrators, um, all the parents. It's not just about how do we include this one kid with a disability, but how do we include the best ideas from all these other people also. So that's what all means all really means to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, it sounds to me like a... Great definition for all means all, which is one of the taglines for SWIFT. And one of the definitions of that is all kids with disabilities get to go to school. And certainly children with the most significant disabilities are often the ones left out. But children with other disabilities that we think of as more manageable somehow sometimes are the most segregated kids. So kids who have behavioral problems or you know, executive function problems. They can walk, they can talk, and those skills get them in trouble all the time. And sometimes those are the kids who are excluded. So when we say all means all, I used to mean (laughs) all means my kid who uses a wheelchair and doesn't speak. But now I know that all means all means children of all races, children of all ethnicities, children of all backgrounds and immigration status and children with all needs um, and their parents and their teachers. We can't just ignore teachers. We can't just say, oh, you must do this. Don't bother to think. It's better to go to the teacher and say, we want to include you in the process too and help us think this through and what do you think would work and how would we do this? Charlie never had a teacher who didn't tell me it was their best year in teaching when they had him. I hear that a lot. 
Yeah, because rooms are kinder. It's, right, right, right. More. Especially with kids with who have labels of the most significant disabilities. I hear that from Absolutely. teachers who have it had the... It brings out the best in the other yeah. children. That's one thing. And no matter who you are, you can always help. Everybody could always help Charlie, you know? <laughs> and that was a good thing. It, right. it gave right. all the children a sense of having empowerment. and um, Well, and that's a powerful role for Charlie. Yeah, but I also never had a teacher for Charlie who didn't go beyond what I thought was possible. I mean, mm-hmm. these people, they're inventive. They figure stuff out. They have ideas. They are willing to try things. What I didn't want to do was write an IEP that would limit what, their What did Charlie's IEP like? Give us some... So I, the one I liked the best was yeah, fourth yeah. grade, and I will now quote it to you in its entirety. Charlie will be included in the regular education classroom 98% of the time with 95% accuracy. <laughs> I love it. So it was a joke. And we had to change it because Minnesota thought they were going to have a monitoring team, but that was the next year. But that year when he had that IEP was, that was the essence of it. The yeah. most productive right. year for him right. because everyone knew that we all trusted each other and that we were a team and that we were trying really hard to figure out the best stuff that we could do. So... Nice. Uh, well, in your position, I mean, one of the highest positions in the U.S. Department of Education, you must travel around the country a lot. You must be connected to a lot of different school districts. Um, what What do you see as some of the most promising practices that are out there supporting this all-means-all philosophy? So uh, the thing that breaks my heart about SWIFT is that it's not big enough to reach every single school district in the Yet. United States. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's clarify that. Yes, yes. Because I think it's in some places, I mean, every place needs something different. Right, right. And in some places what they need is permission to try, and they need a little bit of access to the research or the ideas. Right, which, you know, are all available on swiftschools.org. We have plenty of uh, the field guides and tools. and That's fantastic. Yeah, There's so yeah. much more we can do with Internet, isn't there? It, there C- is, there is. Giving people tools. And I didn't have any of that when Charlie was a little guy. but You had your gut instinct. I did, and I had trained. <laughs> Learning and training are really important. I think sometimes... I have this whole theory about what happens when you get diagnosed, when your child gets diagnosed, or when you get suddenly have a new disability. And my friends who were disabled as adults tell me that this is kind of the process. First, you think, how do I fix this? What's the medical treatment? How can I walk again? How can I get my kid to not have autism? How, you know, they're looking for therapies everywhere. and. Second, then, you start, you realize that's not going to work, so you'll start looking for accommodations. Can I get a wheelchair? Can I get a good wheelchair? Can I get a communication device? Can I get all this other stuff? And finally, you realize that's not quite enough either, because you can have all the equipment you need in your life, and if you don't have rights or can't exercise them, you're screwed. So you need to understand your rights. Just having rights written down on some piece of paper in the state legislature or in the U.S. archives or in the code of U.S. federal regulations, that's not enough. You have to know your rights and know Mm -hmm. how to use your rights. Mm -hmm. So strategies that help move people through these steps, I think, are important. But we have to take that on, too, as parents. It's so important for parents to develop the wisdom to realize 
Do not waste your child's life trying to change them or fix them. Allow them to be children. Allow them to learn that you love them just the way they are. And once you figure that out, the strategy that you take forward to the school is, my child belongs. He belongs in my family. He belongs in my, fa- in my community. He belongs in my heart. He certainly belongs in the school. And that, to me, is the most effective strategy you can have. It's much more effective than... I love that, Sue. I Honestly, I was like wondering, what the heck is she going to say? Is she going to say universal designs for learning, multi-tiered systems of support, positive behavior and interventions and supports? Uh, but I, I, Those I, are all great, but if they're not the, driven by the gut feel right, that, right, right. hey, this is about belonging. Right, so the right to belong yep. is once when you have a clear understanding of the importance of the right That's to belonging. That's embedded in yeah. UDL. It's embedded in multi-tiered systems right, of supports. Right, right, right. You wouldn't do multi-tiered systems of supports if your goal was to fix the kid, right? Because you can have a multi-tiered system of support, but the promise isn't, oh, the autism is going to go away mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. whatever else mm-hmm. is going to mm-hmm. go away. Mm-hmm. You might make gains, you might Mm -hmm. uh, make progress, but it's not going to go away. So having that clear understanding of the right to belonging in their local school, their family, their town, their community. Just as they are. Just uh, Yes, just as they are. Which doesn't mean they can't learn a whole bunch and make a lot of progress. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. With supports like Universal Designs for Learning and Multi-Tiered Systems. All of those things that the U.S. Department of Education has invested in and we continue to invest in. Yes, yes. And we thank you for for your investment in that as, you know, SWIFT Center being a... a I wish I could take credit for that. It's the the staff in OSERS, the staff in OSEP, they're brilliant and they think really long and hard about what should we put grant money out for. And mm-hmm. they, they manage the grants very tightly and very closely to make mm-hmm. sure that there's progress and to make sure that the goals are achieved. So I get to sit on the top and sign the paper, but they are the <laughs> inventors. Um, all right. So we do have 30-plus years of research that clearly informs us that when all children learn together, outcomes are better for everyone. And if you want copies of that research or need to have the citations or the annotations around that, you can go to swiftschools.org and go to the Swift shelf and you can find all that research there. So the the research exists. What do you see as the biggest challenge? What are the barriers to implementation? I mean, why is this not reality across the nation. So going back to the model that I use, I think that's part of it. Mm. I think parents come in at a young age with their child and they're looking for a fix. And so they fall for the message that, oh, we have a school over here that does exactly what your child needs, that has exactly, it's a separate little school, but oh, we have a swimming pool and we have... But as educators, why... Why do people do that? Why why are we not moving... Moving beyond those separate environments to so educate heart, students with disabilities. In my heart, knowing the, the research exists. The only thing I can think of is I don't think that those educators are bad people. I, I don't either. No, of course not. I think they're afraid to look the parent in the eye and say, get over it. Your kid has a disability. They're going to have a disability. They should go to school with everybody else and learn how to live and thrive with their disability. Wow. They just don't have the guts to do it. 
And it's a really hard message to carry. It's hard. It's been hard for me to look other younger parents in the eye and say that. But that's, I mean, we know that physicians are really bad at telling people that they're going to die. We know that teachers might have a lot of trouble telling a parent that their child is not going to learn and be the same as everybody else. And I think therapists have a hard time saying that to people. So I think some of this is moral. I think some of the, mm. of the challenge is that, and it's inertia. We have it set up. There already is this separate school over there or separate inertia, classroom. That's a good word for it. So yeah. you just go with that because that's what there is. Right, and right. fighting it would take some energy. And we know schools are really stretched. It's, it's hard to do what they're doing. So I think SWIFT is a a beacon of hope in that because you can go into a school and help them get over their inertia, help them understand. I mean, most teachers who send a kid to a segregated classroom don't understand that they've just destroyed that kid's life. They don't get it. They think, they hope, they're doing something good for the child. Even if they're sending the child to a, quote, behavior program, they still think, oh, I'm helping that child to overcome his behavior problems. What they don't realize is they've just sent him on a pathway to jail, and that's what's going to happen to him. And I think we need to clarify that for educators to help them understand not just the positive impact of what they could do, but the negative impact of what inertia is leading them to do. Good point. Good point. Um, thank you for raising that. Uh, I, I'd like to bring up SWIFT has five domains, ten features um, that are very prominent in their implementation uh, model. And one of them is parent engagement. Can you it, maybe give some highlights around the importance of parent engagement and in supporting inclusive, equity-based school-wide transformation? Yeah, and... That's one of the things I love about the SWIFT process is having a structure and having real thoughtfulness about it. Mm -hmm. Evidence-based. Yeah. Putting 30 parents in a room and saying, you sort it out for yourselves, (laughs) that's what I was brought up with. And it's um, barbaric (laughs) to say the, the best thing that can be said about it. So having thoughtful ways to help parents gently learn that other people have needs that are equal to their needs, that um, that they need to speak up for their needs, that most of us either were never taught that in the first place or having the experience of having a child with a disability is sometimes so disempowering that we get stuck back in our cave and we think, gosh, I really don't know anything. I, I don't mm. have anything to say. I mean, engagement is the key to everything. Parents with each other parents with teachers, parents with their children. You, you want as much sort of conscious engagement as possible. And there are new challenges in the world now that weren't there when I was a young parent. I, I probably would fall into the trap now of getting on my iPhone and spending all my time on Google or Facebook or, you know, trying to find the answers in the in cyberspace, and the answers aren't there. The answers are in human beings and human contact, and that's what engagement really is, I think, aiming at, and that's what we want to achieve. Nice. Um, Well, and we're really growing our resources on 
the Swift Schools, swiftschools.org website around parent engagement. So hopefully that uh, parents and are finding them a, helpful. And Right. And even if you're not a Swift School, you can use those, right? I mean, you oh, can Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you don't have to take the whole thing. You just no, take, no, no. Those resources are there for the taking, and there are hundreds. I mean, from videos to... Uh, podcasts such as we're doing now, which are downloadable on iTunes, to we manage a monthly um, blog posts and. I think your Facebook page is one of my <laughs> most favorite pl- things on Facebook. Oh, that's nice to hear. If you if you don't like Swift on Facebook, be sure to like Swift. There's a lot of resources that are yeah. promoted yeah. as soon as they come out. Do you have a favorite resource? Um, one that you recommend to people? I'm just curious. I don't. I I like them all. I like whatever one flowed across Facebook most recently. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, your podcast will be floating. I by really soon. would be at at uh, at risk of falling into Facebook and looking for my answers <laughs> there. Well, maybe you'll find it on a little otter swimming upside down <laughs> with a baby on its back. Or <laughs> right. No, I don't do that stuff. <laughs> no cats. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, all right. I, this is a question I'd, I'd love for you to to think about and give some advice. And that is, you know, at Swift, the Swift Center, we often hear from families who are working really, really hard in their school communities to promote inclusive education for their children. Mm-hmm. And in a school that is operating within a model of separate education and parents are experiencing roadblocks what what advice do you have for them so i see a lot of schools and i there's a couple of questions that i always ask mm-hmm. which is do you understand the budget impact of operating a separate program first because a lot of schools don't understand just what a money drain that is and the resources that are lacking in the school. Second, I would encourage parents to say something like, I also have children without disabilities in this school, and I want them to be in the highest performing school, and we know that's an inclusive school. I mean, we need parents without who have kids without disabilities to be recognized mm-hmm. that yes. inclusive schools are better for all kids, not just for disabled kids. The, the flaw with the IEP as the way to fight for your child with a disability in a segregated system is that the IEP is individual. It's right there in the name, the Individual Education Program. So each parent could be going in over and over again and asking for exactly the same thing. I want inclusion, I want inclusion, I want inclusion. And the school just says, well, we can't do that for one person. And... You're stuck in your individual role. So I often say, and many parents have disagreed with me on this, and I respect them, but I think they're wrong, I don't think you can write an inclusive IEP. Uh, An IEP can be inclusive. An IEP can be inclusive within an inclusive system. But if you really want an inclusive program for your child who has a disability, then all of the other children with disabilities also need to be included, and all of the gifted children need to be included, and all of the other children who might struggle a little bit with math need to be included. And I think that's the beauty of the whole approach of the Department of Education now, is looking at multi-tiered systems Mm -hmm. of supports, and you have to think through, it's multi-tiered systems of supports, what funds those supports? Right. 
in a segregated system, many of the supports that would be of benefit to all children are also segregated off in a different place. And if you really apply systems thinking, you, ha you have to be asking for inclusion for everybody. Um, so I, I think that's a challenge we as parents need to sort of think about is, are we trying to do something impossible here by writing an inclusive IEP and by staying in our own lane, in our own box, when we should be organizing with other parents? The other question that I've often found to be really, really productive in a school is, I just ask people, do you know what the earliest and most persistent sign of giftedness is in a child? And they guess reading early or math, and it's not those things. It's a strong sense of social justice. Hmm. It's that little kid who was always yelling, it's not fair, it's not fair. That's the gifted kid. And when you're operating a segregated classroom in your school and all of the kids who are gifted with social justice see that going on, we're hurting those kids. We're really hurting them. So I think to recognize the, the future strengths, the future members of Senate, the future doctors, the future lawyers, all of those people in our schools, the little kids who are going to grow up and be leaders, we really need to include kids with disabilities just to honor that sense of social justice. And I, I don't think we make that argument enough, um, that it's just better for everybody mm -hmm. if schools are inclusive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're going to turn a corner. We're going to hit a tipping point. We're going to hit some place where all of a sudden... Schools are going to figure out that the secret to performance is inclusion. <laughs> and then everybody's going to want to do it. And the, the struggle for resources to help is, is going to be who gets there first. And I think we're almost there. But we're not quite there. Um, but I think we're almost there. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. Um, do you have any final comments? Um. One more thing. You yes. mentioned equity, and I, I can't be in the Obama administration and not talk about racial and ethnic mm -hmm. equity. And I just think it's really important for us to realize also that when we operate segregated classrooms for children with disabilities, those often become the cover for segregating children who are from a different racial background from the majority in a school. And we see way too much of that from the place where I sit. Um, it's not equal. It's never been equal. But we try to fix it from the racial platform, and it's really hard to do that. As long as we allow segregation of children with disabilities, mm -hmm. we're going to have this little open doorway to right, segregate right. African-American kids or Latino kids and or Native American kids, and we just need to close that doorway. So it's related to some of the other work that we're trying to accomplish in the Obama administration and in the Department of Education. Yeah, that's all related. Um, I, I 
I think we're going to close there. Okay. And I really appreciate your time with us this afternoon. And if you would like to hear more from Sue Swenson, you can listen to her keynote address that she presented at SWIFT's Professional Learning Institute a couple of months ago on the SWIFT YouTube channel. You will find, again, along with many other fantastic resources, to assist you with inclusive, equity-based education and school-wide transformation. Just go to swiftschools.org. And SWIFT is a national K-8 center that provides academic and behavioral support to promote the learning and academic achievement of all students, including students with disabilities and those with the most extensive needs.